Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Octavia Leona Koner uh, for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 27th, 2017, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello. Hi. Uh, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> um, oh wait, also, uh, will it pick up? If I use this voice, will this will it be able to pick up like just as well, or should I just like stick with the booming voice? I'll stick with the booming voice. It's fine. I think whatever voice you're most comfortable sure. speaking. Sure. Um, oh well, that's a complicated question. Um, <laughs> uh, so my childhood. Uh, uh, how far back should I start, I guess? I guess, like, I was born in Canarsie, uh, lived there until I was six-ish. Uh, then, very conveniently, when my family was thinking of moving, my grandfather's pizzeria burned down, and using the insurance money, we moved to Staten Island. Do you have memories from Canarsie? Um, vaguely. I remember living in a really small, sort of, like, it was, like, longer, more than wider, sort of, like, place in Brooklyn, uh... I remember, uh, I remember I used to be in my grandfather's pizzeria and I would sit on the counter and I would eat Ralph's ices all day, essentially. Or it wasn't even Ralph's, it was like Italian ices. Um, and I remember living with my father and my grandparents and they all lived together and my mother had moved out of, uh, Moved away when I was two from Brooklyn to go to Michigan to escape, essentially, me. <laughs> um, I, I was really young, but it seemed nice, from what I can remember. I remember, I remember not joining the family to eat dinner. I would uh, sit at a Lego table in front of the TV because uh, I was young and like they, I couldn't hold a conversation. I still can't, but I'm older now, so I have no excuse. <laughs> And so you moved to Staten Island, your family, when you were six? Around six, maybe five. A little fuzzy there. Don't talk to family enough to, like, know specifics, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so around that time, we moved to Staten Island. I uh, started to go to, like, how old you are when you go to kindergarten, so I guess six, maybe? Mm -hmm. So Staten Island, uh, I started school in kindergarten, very little, a small amount of pre-K. I was always almost old always older than the other kids because I was born in February, um, which is awful. <laughs> um, lived in Staten Island until I was 18, oh, 19. Tell us about Staten Island. Oy vey. Um, <laughs> so in Staten Island, I lived towards the exact middle of Staten Island, which is New Springville, um, which means I could have gone essentially anywhere to high school because New Springville didn't have its own high school except for like this really fancy joint uh, that you had to like test into and God knows I couldn't test into it. Um, uh, actually, New Springville, a lot of my, a lot of my like really formative years was spent in Staten Island. Kind of fucked me up. Um, it's kind of a weird joint in New York City. Uh, where I lived, it was kind of like the more liberal part-ish, uh, which I don't know if that helped or hurt my situation um, as a faggot and then tranny. 
Um, oh, sorry. Content warning slurs. Um, I think it's okay. Great. <laughs> um, yeah, so living in Staten Island was mostly weird, I would say. I would say Staten Island was weird. And I think it made me weird. Or maybe I was weird, and it was just a weird place for me to live. What was weird about it? Um, well, my childhood nickname was Faggot. Um, <laughs> so I, I was called Faggot from, like, age... Like, before I knew what gay was. I learned what a... I, I like, was called Faggot before I knew what a faggot was. Um, they called me at maybe when... I, they started calling me it when I was, like, maybe in, like... God, third grade? Um, maybe even second? Because I remember I would play handball outside this uh, middle school that I lived... I lived, like, a five-minute walk from my uh, middle and elementary school, and I would play handball outside my elementary school, um, and I wasn't very good, and people called me faggot, um, and I was a pretty effeminate kid. I always wanted to play the princess and fucking, like, oh my god, I'm such a goddamn cliche. I always wanted to be the goddamn princess, um, and whenever we played house, I'd wonder if I could be the wife. <laughs> um, so they started calling me faggot. They called me Joey Baloney at first, but then they started calling me faggot. Joey Baloney, I like I never wish I never wish I could have been called Joey Baloney because somehow that's worse than faggot. Uh, uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's the kind of place where you get called a faggot before you know what being gay is, which I guess is like everywhere really. But I don't know. It was that kind of weird. How did you get along with your family? <laughs> so, my mom left me when I was two, and we had, like, sort of kind of on and off communication. Like, she would sometimes visit, I would sometimes visit her in Michigan, until maybe I was, like, ten. And she knew I liked Pokemon, so, like, the last thing she got me before I never saw her again was a pack of Digimon cards. <laughs> Which was, so, like, that's kind of encapsulates the kind of relationship my mother had with me. <laughs> uh, she was like, oh, you like Pokemon? And she takes me to Toys R Us to get me a game, video game, and instead she gets me a pack of Digimon cards. So that's, like, kind of the encapsulation there. But, like, she was also poor, and, like, whatever. My father... So there was, like, a year in around middle school time where I moved out of Staten Island to live upstate with my father. And he had, and this must have been, I must have been 11 when this happened. And he had for the past, like, 11 years and for his entire life up until that point lived with his mother, my grandmother, um, so she could help raise me and, like, you know, he could, like, I don't know. This whole Michigas of, like, he was a 19-year-old guy with, like, a kid on, like, was raising him, was raising him alone, um... And then he had a second kid with another woman, and he wasn't married to her eventually, but, like... So we moved upstate for about a year, um... And that sucked more than Staten Island somehow. Like, upstate New York is worse than anything ever you can imagine, ever. Um, I lived... Kinda close... I went to Syracuse High... It was called Syracuse High School, but it was a middle school and a high school together. Um, and I only went there for a year. And then... 
in Syracuse, New York? Kind of. I lived in Northumberland, okay. which is where Hemingway's mother is from, too. <laughs> Catch, like, 11-year-old me trying to find desperate pride in where I lived. Um, didn't work. Um, and my father never really wanted me. And, like, that was obvious. He would have fights with... He got remarried eventually to this woman. And he would have, like, fights all the time with her about me. I overheard him yell, like, you know, he's my problem, so he's your problem, too. Um, my stepmother's parents would be, be like... My, as my step-parents were fighting, my stepmother's parents would, like... Her father said to me once when I was moving from upstairs to downstairs, so I would be not as close to my father and stepmother... Um, and they would, like, have their kid up there instead and, like, all this other stuff. Uh, he was like, you know, they're like this because of you. You're, you're ruining their life. And I was like, yeah, I know. Uh, and my relationship with my stepmother was she would never sit down and have dinner with me. And my father would never be around for dinner either because he was, like, a he, like, worked delivery truck stuff. Uh, so we had, like, long hours. Sorry. Um, Go on as long as you'd like. So I didn't have really a relationship with my father all that much. I had a close relationship with my grandparents. And when my father tried to have a relationship with me, it was through, like, not knowing what to do about me. Do you have any good memories from Staten Island? <laughs> yeah, but they're all sex-related. <laughs> um... Yeah, I had a lot of fun sex on Staten Island. And also, no, that's it. <laughs> what were your friendships and social connections like? I didn't have friends until high school. And then when I did have friends, like, it was a mix of people who, like, used to hate me and now tolerated me and people who used to tolerate me and now like me and the rare person who had always liked me and now really liked me. Um, and also, like, I was an annoying faggot, and I was the only, like, out gay person in my school in my year, so I was, like, the gay guy, um, and, like, fag hags love the gay guy, so I attracted, like, future fag hags and, like, people who were, like, fucking, uh, like, oh, look at how cool I am, I have a gay friend, like, that kind of sitch, uh, and I kind of got through friends through the GSA, uh, but I joined my GSA thinking, like, oh, we're going to, like, start petitions and have, like, die-ins and, like, we're going to be the next ACT UP, but in high school. Um, I didn't know really about ACT UP, but I, like, had this vision of us being what I would learn would be like ACT UP. Um, and it didn't work out. The GSA was more a social club, and that was fine, but I remember always being like, hey, let's do this, and people being like, yeah, let's do a petition. And I was like, yeah, cool, petition. <laughs> so you had political inclinations. Yeah, kind of. Um, I think I watched a little too many horror films as a kid. Uh, and there's a lot of, like, politicians as the villain in horror films. Um, and I think I was, like, kind of fucked to, like, want to see the destruction of the U.S. government pretty early. <laughs> um, I remember describing myself as an anti-capitalist in high school. Um, and I turned the day of silence into the day of screaming. And... Uh, I, I remember learning that we were having a blood drive and my first response wasn't, uh, oh, great, people save people's lives. It was, why can't the gays get blood? <laughs> uh, and we actually set up a petition outside 
the blood drive. Like, so every person participating, like, we'd be like, hi, will you let gay people give blood? Do you want to sign this thing? Um, and almost everyone did. It was really nice. Uh, the day of screaming was a bit of a surprise. We told everyone it was the day of silence. And then in the GSA, I was like, okay, let's just walk around screaming. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like a weird lefty high schooler. And you had an active sex life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so when I was 18, I had already had sex with probably, it wasn't that active really in the grand scheme of things. But by 18, I had already had sex with around 40 people. Um, and 19, it was like around 50 people. Um, and that includes, I guess, just blowjobs. Um, I thought I was being real slick, not losing my virginity until 16 by giving people blowjobs all the time, but that's not really how it works. <laughs> uh, and you don't realize that until you're older. <laughs> how would you meet people? Oh, God. This was before Grinder and smartphones and all those other things, so I used Adam for Adam. I would pretend I was an 18-year-old guy, but really, I was like... I started at 14. Um, and I would say I was 18, and I was like, obviously not 18 if you ever saw me, but that didn't stop 40-year-olds from going on dates with me. Uh, <laughs> oh, God warning, I'm the, like, worst example of a trans woman. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I'm not really good at this respectability bullshit. Yeah, but... Anyway, so I was this 14-year-old boy going on dates with these 40-year-old men, um, and I thought it was normal. Uh, and I thought it was actually really revolutionary when I turned 16 and I was like, you know what? I can't do 40 year olds anymore. 30 is my age limit now. <laughs> um, so yeah, pretty active sex life. Um, I, there, I, like I said, I was the only gay guy in my school, really. Um, there were like other gay guys I kind of knew of in my school. I came out because, God, this really fucked me up, I think. So I, I was 14 years old and I only came out because I had a crush on this guy who was in the GSA in the poetry club and he was a senior <laughs> and I was like he's hot and easy <laughs> he looks like he wants to have sex with me um and he did but he was like listen uh I can only like date you if you come out of the closet um because I was like this 14 year old faggot no one knew I was gay I was like you know but like except the person who wants to fuck me um and I was like I was like yeah sure whatever I mean, like, it's going to be fine coming out of the closet as long as I have a boyfriend. Um, so this freshman started dating the senior uh, and then dumped the senior because he was a bad lay. <laughs> and that's <laughs> and that's how I came out and started having sex with as many people as possible. Did uh, you form connections with people at all or was it fun or what was what were some of the good sides for you around all that? Um... The good sides was I got really, really good at sex. Like, I'm just, like, astoundingly good at sex. It's really quite, like, frightening. <laughs> um, and I learned what sex was for earlier than I think a lot of people do. Um, and, like, I, I call it networking now. Um, it's a different kind of networking, but it's networking. Um, definitely met a lot of people. But it was also a little traumatic. It's kind of fucked up a 16-year-old having sex with, like, 30-year-olds. Like, those are, like, whatever, abibophiles, if you have to say it. But, like, 
That's creepy. Um. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was okay. Adam for Adam was a fun website to use. Um, God, I wonder if it's still around. Anyway. So what happened when you um, when you were eighteen? So when I was eighteen, I got into Hunter College. Uh, I don't know how. I, I, I tested well, um, but I, like, I eventually graduated high school with, like, a 75% average, or 78% average of classes, and, like, this is, like, going into AP classes and, like, all this other bullshit that they, like, are, like, oh, please make our school look a little bit better, because <laughs> um, I went to Port Richmond High School, which was at one point rated one of the top 10 worst high schools in New York City, um, and it was not, it's not, like, I still have scars from that high school, like, physical, from being bashed a lot. Um, it wasn't a fun place to go to school, but it was exciting, and I learned how to fight really, really well. Um, so at 18, I got into Hunter College, and I thought I was, like, big shit on campus, because all my other friends had gotten into Staten Island College, (laughs) which is, like, really kind of fucked up and mean of me. Um, and I started going there, uh, and I met my future fiancé and Hunter College, and kind of used dating her, him at the time, as an excuse to uh, move into the city at 19, at the Hunter dorms. And tell me about Hunter. Um, it was okay. I don't think I was, like, ready for college. In the same way that, like, I wasn't ready for high school when I was in it. Um, I had a lot of shit to figure out. And I, like, didn't have the work ethic required to be in college, really. At least in the, at least in the field I was in, which was eventually anthropology. Um, but it took me a while to meander into there. Um, I just didn't know what to do or how to do it. So it was kind of a waste of time, really, college. Uh, and then I came out as trans, and then I completely collapsed as a human being. <laughs> Uh, just, like, fold, like, you know when you see one of those chairs that are, like, made out of, like, the thin metal, and you see it, like, collapse suddenly, and, like, it kind of still looks like what it used to look like. You could tell it used to be a chair, but it's, like, not useful anymore. Like, that's what happened to me in college. But I was still going to college. Um, so Hunter was a pain in the ass. What led you to come out as trans? There was this club at Hunter College called the Queer Student Union. And I joined it. And the Queer Student Union could be summed up as there was only ever one trans woman and no one spoke to her the entire time I was part of it until I became a trans woman. Um, There was a lot of trans people a lot of transmasculine people or K-fab non-binary or K-fab transmasculine or like a lot of not trans women were there. And I was going to this club ostensibly as an annoying faggot um, until I started cross-dressing. And it wasn't drag really. It was like I was going out and like doing like chores or going to class and like dresses and like blouses and like... I would always try to frame it as like, haha, look at how gay I am, or look at how funny this is. Isn't it so funny that I'm in women's clothing? Because uh, I hadn't known a single trans woman. 
I had not met a single trans woman, and I was 19, and then this trans man I know, uh, Mike Alt, who is, and Mike's then partner, uh, approached me, and they were like, so my dead name is Joe. It was, it's, my dead name is Joseph Michael Paul Falone, which is the most Italian-American name I've heard in my life. Um, if they threw an Anthony in there, it really would have just been cemented. Um, and this guy, Mike, he comes up to me and he's like, Joe, you know, if you're like a guy that wears dresses and like you're alter- you have like this alternative masculinity, like very like college transmasculine, like I, I accept you. Like, you know, that's really cool. Like we get it if you're just like a gay guy who wears dresses, we totally understand. But are you trans? Like, just ask, like, are you trans? And I hadn't thought of it at all. I hadn't thought of it at all. Like, the only trans men I knew were, like... Like, the trans woman I knew from, like, peer outreach when I was, like, in high school in the Community Health Action Network. I would, like, go out and, like, hand condoms out to people and I would these... these and I would work with trans women, but, like, ostensibly, like, I didn't really talk to them and, like, I t- all the gay guys I talked to were, like, oh, don't talk to them, they're crazy. Um... And then I was the crazy one. <laughs> That's what gender is. You're the sane one until you're the crazy one. Um, so this guy asked me, are you trans? And I go, and I look at him, and I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing like a, a long chiffon skirt and a, and a white blouse, and I look like someone from, like, if the hills have eyes meets the sounds of music. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think for, like, maybe three seconds of silence, and I go, huh, you know, I think I am. And Mike is stunned at my answer. Is just like, uh, cool. Do you want to talk about that? And this is in the Christian unit. So it's like at college campus. And I'm like, you know, I think so, but I have to go to class. <laughs> so I go to class out after that. And I'm freaking out. And then I come back and I'm like, you know, I don't think I should go to class anymore. I think I should just like sit with this for a second. <laughs> um, so trans men made me a trans woman. And I, it explains a lot. <laughs> and it was quite hard for you. Yeah. I think the hardest part is I didn't know a trans woman until a year into medically transitioning already. Um, I think that was really the hardest part. So I was 19. had started a relationship with someone who would then become my fiancé, and it was like a really nice relationship. And it gave me kind of the comfort and space to come out as trans, really. Uh... Because, like, you know, I was with someone who loved me. So, of course, they would accept me for being trans. Um, and, like, I was already a gay guy. And, like, she at the time was a gay guy. And we were, like, gay together. And I was like, oh, this is just kind of, like, a different kind of gay. It's fine. Um, like, we we're both cross-dressing right now. What's the difference? She was cross-dressing with me at the moment, too. Um, but it wasn't that easy. And I don't think it's ever as easy as you think it will be. And I think you, if you think it's hard, it's harder. Um, so I dropped out of Hunter eventually. And I don't know. It was really, 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 really hard. It was hard to go from like having really nothing to then having less than nothing. What were some of the hardest things about it? So, I didn't really have any family. I think it was one of the harder things. When I moved to 
when I moved to Manhattan, at 20, I was living in Manhattan, um, in the dorms, and I was kind of, sort of, and I was just, like, realizing I was trans, and I had, like, that thing where I was, like, really happy to be trans, but kind of, like, trying to pull away from it, but, and, like, so I was, like, I'm trans, but am I, da 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 um, and I didn't really have family. My I was only living with my grandmother because my father shipped me off from upstate New York to live with her because he didn't want to be around me. Um, and I didn't really have a queer family like I did, but none of them were like, none of them got it. Like I then like got to be like the crazy one. Because let's face it, if, the, if you get like five trans men and a trans woman together, like the five trans men will talk about how crazy the trans woman is. Um, and I mean, they're right, but like that doesn't make it okay. Um, and they're also crazy. That's what they don't realize. They're just as crazy. Um, I'm using crazy pretty loosely here. I don't actually, you know. Um, now we're all pretty crazy. Um, if you show me a stable trans woman, I will call you a liar. Um... So it was hard. It was really, 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 really hard because I didn't have any family, either blood or queer. I had friends, but I didn't have family. I had to figure everything out on my own. Like, the trans men I knew could give me general advice. They told me to go to Callan Lord. So I went to Callan Lord because they were like, we go to Callan Lord. And then they told me to go to Babeland because they were like, oh, maybe they have like things at Babeland for you. Like, they have things for us there, and I went to Paveland, and all they had was packers and binders, so they didn't have anything for me at Paveland. <laughs> and this is when I was 20, so this is long before I started working at Paveland. Uh, this was, like, trans men being like, go to Paveland. Um, <laughs> eventually, like, when I told a tell trans woman this story, they find that very funny, that a trans man told me to go to Paveland for gender affirmation stuff, because, like, of course it's funny. Like, that's not where you go. Um, but I didn't know any trans ones, so I went to Big Blend. So, um, you dropped out of Hunter. What happens next? So I drop out of Hunter. And what happens next is... I spend a year without a job and without college really or maybe like more like six months because I, I took like one class at Hunter like for two semesters just so I could stay in the system which is slick by the way if you go to Hunter College like ever anyone listening to this and you want to stay in that system but like you're having a crisis just take one bullshit class that'll keep you in the system and you pay like 300 bucks for or whatever and like just like don't get out of the motherfucking system <laughs> um so I spent, like, some amount of time without college or without a job. And I was suicidally depressed, and I was living with an abusive partner who I was engaged to at that point, maybe? I don't know. Um, but I was living with a partner who was, like, severely, severely, like, evil. Who I started dating as a boy, and who was a boy when we started dating. And then I transitioned, and then she transitioned. So we got to be the two boys that ended up as two girls engaged to each other. Which is not all that common a story, but is like, it's just like funny. It's funny. So I'm, I'm with an abusive partner. I don't have a job and I'm not in college and I have cats and I'm miserable and I'm suicidal 
and I try to take my life for the umpteenth time. I don't even know how many, I don't even know how many times I've tried at this point, but let's say the seventh time, who knows? Maybe sixth. So that's where I was at then. And then during one of my nicer mental breaks, I was in therapy and like I was like not trying to actively kill myself. Um, my ex, my partner at the time, she turns to me and she goes, "Hey, Babeland is hiring. I just I just sent in my resume. You should send in your resume." And I do. And then we get interviewed together. And then we get hired together. And then I start working at the Brooklyn location of Babeland. What year was that? 2015. Mm-hmm. Anything else from that year that you want to share? That year was when I got engaged to my partner at the time. Uh, that year was... God, 2015. That feels like a lifetime ago, but it's only like a year and a half ago, for God's sakes. Um, I I really don't remember much of 2015. It was like mostly a suicidal K-hole. <laughs> um, I remember starting to work at Babeland, but I was like so nervous for like the first three months I was working at Babeland. Oh, 2015 is also not only the year when I was engaged, but also the year my fiance broke up with me because I tried to kill myself. <laughs> there was a six month gap between me trying to kill myself and her breaking up with me. But yeah. She, uh, yeah, she called it quits towards the end of 2015. Uh, and then I showed up to work high femme, and then she called it not quits. <laughs> uh, she came back to my, she came back to the home we shared, uh, and we essentially, like, made love. It was really kind of strange, and then we got back together for a bit. So in 2015, I got a job, got engaged, broke up got back together, tried killing myself. Busy year, really. Yeah, so that was 2015. Did you have anything that you enjoyed doing during that time? No. So tell me about your job at Babeland. What did you get hired to do? So my official position at Babeland is... Sex educator slash sales associate. Now, in interviews, they'll call you a sex educator, but in, like, one-on-ones, they'll be sales associate. Um, Because sex educator, like, that's great for people to, like, refer to you as in the news, but uh, really, you're just there to peddle dildos. And it's the same job. Are you in it now? Yeah, I'm still in the same position. Um, I was hired at the Brooklyn location, um, but transferred to the Rivington location, which is the Lower East Side location. Um, <clears throat> mostly because I found the Brooklyn location, like, very, like, not my scene. Like, it's very, like, there's, like, a lot of soccer moms that come in and, like, families and, like, chill, like, adults who are adulting. And then, like, the Lower East Side, you get a bunch of drunk idiots at, like, 10 p.m. who are, like, just fucking wild. And I know how to deal with that far better than I do functioning adults. You give me a bunch of drunk assholes, I can handle those any day of the week. Uh, and for people that don't know, uh, describe Babeland overall as a business. Like, what does Babeland do? So Babeland is 
I, f- I forget what they try to call it. I don't think they call it an adult store. Um, we are a feminist, woman-owned sex shop, I guess is what I would call it. We sell dildos. We sell vibrators. We sell harnesses and books and, like, instructional porn and... Um, like, we're kind of like an area between, we're a luxury electronics boutique. That's what I say whenever I have to tell people what I have to do and I don't want to talk about doldos. Um, so we sell sex toys and we're woman owned, we're ostensibly woman owned and we're like allegedly feminist. Um, and... Very sex positive and body positive or mostly certain bodies. Um, so that's Babeland. And how how big was the staff? Like how many people at each location? Um, it, it's like really varied. The Soho location, um, which is on Mercer Street, has the most employees. I think somewhere, I like, this is like spitballing. I, I want to say somewhere around like 18, while the Lower East Side location has somewhere around like 12, and the Brooklyn location has somewhere around 9, generally. Like, those are like rough numbers, and they're constantly changing, but like, if you keep that in mind, like, that's about the number. Like, I think we have somewhere around like 45 people overall mm-hmm. that are like staff. And you said you were quite nervous starting out. Yeah, I... So I had experience, like, talking about sex, uh, but it was, like, through, like, a healthcare-ish lens because I, uh, I volunteered slash worked at the Community Health Action Network of Staten Island um, as, like, an outreach person. And so, I, like, I had that on my resume. And I, like, I was queer, but I was also the only trans woman present at my location. Um, and, like, I didn't really know how to talk about sex in an acceptable way around these people. Uh, Because they all had, like, very, very, like, structured and, like, like, hyper-boundary-oriented ways of talking about sex and sexuality and, like, very, like, textbook-y, but, like, like, if you're reading a textbook about, like, really radical, queer, sex-positive, body-positive sex, where, like, we love to say vulva, but, like, I don't know. I couldn't describe myself as a faggot on the job, I think. I think that would ruffle some feathers. And what were your dynamics with your coworkers and supervisors? And what was, did you make friends? Did you struggle there? I, I made, at the Brooklyn location, there's really only one person I would have called, I would call like a friend that I made. Um, everyone else I would just kind of like worked with. Maybe two. Maybe I made friends with like two people. Like there's two people I could like see myself being socially with and look who I have been social with and like who I enjoy seeing outside of the Babeland context. Um, and that's at the Brooklyn location. The Rivington location was a lot more friendly. Like, I, it was a lot, like, everyone was, like, we, we, it was jokingly referred to as Femme Palace. Um, and I moved, actually, to the Rivington location because I was tired of being the only trans woman as well. Like, the, the environment at Brooklyn was not for me. It's, like, a great environment, but it's not for me. Um, I was the only trans woman working there. They, I still, they still have not had a single trans woman working there since I left, actually. Um. And I moved to the Rivington location to move with my now ex fiance. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's wild. Is she still working there with you? She she's getting a pussy right now. Uh, well, she's recovering post pussy right now. Um, so like she hasn't worked there in a little bit, but she's coming back. Um, 
she's also a model, so hopefully she just moves to fucking Europe and gets out of my goddamn light hair. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, um, so, yeah, we, we still kind of work together. I don't see her very often. Um, but, like, I don't know. Babylon actually has not hired a trans woman in over a year. Um, since the unionization efforts, there hasn't been a single trans woman hired. Um, I don't think me sitting in front of them during bargaining sessions every time that there was a bargaining session helped that, really. Uh, I'm, I'm quite loud and argumentative and not very agreeable. Um, and I think they think all trans women are. And I think maybe... I won't speculate on why Babyland, because I still work there, is not hiring trans women. But all I'll say is I have not seen another trans woman hired since the unionization efforts. When did you first start thinking about a union, or when did you first start talking with people about it? So I have to give a shout-out to uh, Lena Solo, who is, like, this... She she writes for Teen Vogue and, like, all these other... She's very impressive. She's a very impressive person. Um, and she she approached my fiancé, my then-fiancé, um, and was like, we have a union, we're, like, planning on having a union... Uh, you're, like, a leftist, you should, like, sign on to it. Oh, also, Octavia has, like, an Antifa and ACAB tattoo and, like, a red and black flag. Like, she's probably pro... You should just tell Octavia that, that we're getting a union. So my fiancé, at the time, she comes to me and she's like, oh, Lena is talking to me about a union. Um, <clears throat> she told me to talk to you because she figured you'd be down. And I was like, yeah, obviously. We're not syndicalist. Do you think I'm going to be, like, boo unions? So you were quite political yeah. at this point. You hadn't talked much about that. How did you get into the politics? How did I get into politics? Well, I was a faggot. Yeah. I was a faggot on Staten Island who, like, and I was, like, you know, briefly homeless, and, like, I had already seen enough people die, and, like, I had been threatened far too many times, and, like, when your life is in danger, you either, like, collapse, assimilate, or, like, fight back, and I chose to fight back. And you identified as an anarcho-syndicalist? Um, I didn't identify until anarcho-syndicalist until I was in, like, I, I was an anarcho-communist and then anarcho-syndicalist because I found more language eventually through Wikipedia. Uh, and then I, uh, well, and then I, like, well, kind of, someone mentioned anarcho-syndicalism to me a lot. Like, I knew a lot of, like, anarchists. Like, my, my main joining the political movements was through anarchism. Um... Uh, because I was one of the faggots in high school who was like, fuck marriage. Like, why do we care so much about marriage? <laughs> like, why... Like, that, this is bullshit. <laughs> why do we want, like, the state to accept us? I don't want to be accepted by the state. I just don't want there to be a state. Um, and before Babeland, what was your engagement um, with movements like? I would not describe my engagement with Babeland as an engagement with the movement. My, the union at Babeland, yes, but never Babeland. So b before you started working there and working on the union? So I would, I would even say, like, in high school when I was with the Community Health Action Network, like, that was, like, fairly political. Like, we were handing out condoms and, like, we were talking to people about AIDS and we were, like, talking to people about being queer and I would, like, you know, like, they were, like, like, looking back, like, really, really ex extraordinary trans women who were trans women in high school handing out, like, condoms, like, at the St. George Ferry. Like, like, astounding people, really. Um, so, like, that's where it started. Um, so it actually started somewhere from sex positivity and, like, 
safer sex and like stuff like that. Um, and then in and then in college, I was I was part of like Students for Justice in Palestine. I was part of the Queer Student Union. I went to several like uh, like ISO meetings for like that they had like a college branch of, although they were considered like the weird ones. Um, and I was like, they don't seem that bad. Um, and I would be grumpy at hello meetings. <laughs> hello. Uh, <laughs> and I, and I, I remember being in one of the meetings and I was like, why are we pinkwashing Israel? <laughs> um, which did not make me very popular. Um, and also I was like starting to hear about certain things that were going on in the streets and how to get involved with them. Um, so eventually some of my time was spent doing that stuff. What was happening in New York? street politics at the time so what was happening was occupy mm -hmm. um i remember it was very funny i had just gotten a job at uh, american apparel and then occupy was also just getting started and i would like bring in the there used to be like this occupy newspaper that they would hand out um and i would bring it from occupy and i was a boy at this time and i would bring it from my from, from like uh <sighs> whenever Michigas was going on to like my job and people would be like, oh, what is that? And I'd be like, oh, have you heard about anarchism? <laughs> um, and I wasn't like, I wasn't like involved in Occupy, but I would like, you know, go down, spend a few hours. Like I got involved when it was like halfway to critical mass. Um, I would mostly be to listen. Like I would show up and I would be like mostly silent and I would just like listen to people talk. And talk and talk and talk and talk and talk because God knows Occupy was really good at having people talk and talk and talk and talk. Um, but I learned stuff. Stuff I wasn't learning in college really and stuff I wasn't learning at work and stuff, and stuff my family didn't teach me and stuff that I think like the trans women that I was working with in high school were kind of like teaching me but not really yet. And what was your association with unions in the city during, when you were involved with Occupy and before then? None really. Mostly people hated unions. <laughs> the unions are a contentious topic amongst the left. <laughs> That's uh, a nice way to say it. Um, I didn't really know much about unions. Um, I tried to unionize vaguely my job in Staten Island when I worked at Hollister by sleeping with people. Um, or I'm trying to sleep with people and like trying to convince them that like we needed better pay and better hours And I did that by being a slut um, And being like oh, you know, like I didn't I didn't have like the knowledge of unions or the language for unions Really like I knew what unions were and I thought we should be in one my father was in a union um, And I didn't know how to like organize really a union So I just fucked people and told them about unions and it was working <laughs> What was your dad's union? Oh, what's the one with the two horses? Teamsters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, because he, he like, he originally worked for FedEx, and then he worked mm -hmm. for the fucking yellow trucks we saw driving around the city briefly. Uh -huh. That fucking um, shipping thing, which got, dro drove out. DHL? DHL, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he worked for DHL. He was like part, he was like, he did that. He was like a delivery person. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you were approached at Bay Blend by by uh, my fiance who was approached by Lena Solo. Yeah, and tell me about getting involved in the effort. 
Um, so getting involved with the effort was being told there was a union, me going, oh, fuck yes, and then me meeting the union organizers, uh, like the people who were like helping Babeline unionize at the RWDSU, who were Stephanie and Pete. Um, and I remember thinking right away, like, oh my God, this is really exciting. I don't know anything about unions, but I know I love them. <laughs> um, which is like the perfect person you want to meet when you're like a union organizer. <laughs> Cause you get to tell them what unions you, th- what you think unions are. And then they get to, they, they like believe you. Um, and I was like agitating people. How long have you been working in Babeline? At this point, I was, like, only working at Babeline maybe, like, two and a half, maybe three months. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I had my, mm, yeah, around three months. I had my 90-day review, like, at four months, which is, like, just how Babeline functions. They have a 90-day review they give you four months in. (laughs) Maybe five. Someone waited eight months before their 90-day review review months. It was really just, like, very funny. Um... Uh, and I was agitating people after being approached and talking to, like, the union. I made some fuck-ups. I, like, let people know there was a union too soon, and, like, I wasn't sticking to the EIOU very well, and, like, I was just, like, really excited, and I thought everyone else would be just as excited, but people were not just as excited. What's the EIOU? A-E-I-O-U. It's a method in unionization that stands for agitate, educate, inoculate, organize, union. Mm Mm-hmm. And by telling people there was a union too soon? So I was really good at agitating because I'm a very agitated person who is good at making other people feel agitated. Uh, I was good at educating uh, because I was, I I learned things the way that you teach, like that you are able to teach your worker, like your coworkers, which is not through textbook, but by talking. Um, And kind of sometimes I would, skip the inoculate part which wasn't very good which is essentially like being like oh they're going to say this but really it's this like oh they're going to say unions take half of your pay when really they take like three percent maximum generally three to five percent um and so i miss that part sometimes and then organize is like getting them in and signing the like shops like the, the like i agree that we should have a union card and like like getting collective action together and I would bring people to O a little bit too early. Um, I wouldn't have like felt them out enough, or I didn't agitate them enough, or I wasn't very good at that part. I'll admit it. I'm better. I'm much better now. Um, I still agitate really well. <laughs> so I wasn't actually super, 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 super good at getting people to meet like Steph and Pete. Um, I was good at getting people agitated, who then other people could be like, hi, you're really agitated. Do you want to meet Stephen Pete? <laughs> um, yeah. Do you remember any early meetings that were influential for you or conversations around the union? Honestly, like, I was, like, gung-ho from the start. Like, I was just like, yay, unions! Um, I was already, like, an anarcho-communist at this point, kind of a anarcho-syndicalist. Like, I, I didn't, like, I, I just, I did, I just got my politics. It's like, what if we didn't have governments? What if we only had unions? Um, but I didn't realize that was really anarcho-syndicalism for a while, but I had already had, uh, this puppy, mm-hmm. uh, which is my tattoo of the anarcho-communism, anarcho-syndicalism bag. Um, so like, I, 
I don't remember having any meetings with the unions that were like super influential because they met me once essentially and they were like, okay, we can leave this one alone. <laughs> um, but you you described that they that you were impressionable to their characterizations of what a union was. That was later on. Okay. That was after we went to the vote. Interesting. So, although I wasn't terribly good at getting everyone to sign the cards, both because of the hours I worked and also like the way I got people agitated. Um, like it, it was actually fairly quick from like we should have a union to oh we have a union um we had a vote oh we we like we so we got enough people to send the card we got 70 percent of the staff at babeland to sign these cards saying we want a union how long did that take depends on how you look at it so we had a lot of high turnover at one point like so we had somewhere around like 30-ish percent of the staff already signed cards, but like a lot of them quit all at once because Babeland was a pain in the ass to work at. Um, and then we were able to get the new hires on and they were new, so they were like fresh and we got them pretty early to be like pro-union. And then because they were new, we were able to get them to be like, okay, I will stay until we vote to have a union. So we got from, we got, so it took us like, Three months to get from t zero to thirty percent, and then everyone quit, and we were somewhere around like maybe fifteen percent ish, and then it took us another three, four, maybe five months to get to seventy percent. I mean, I want to say like five months, really, maybe four. I remember thinking it was too long than it should have been, but I'm also like short-tempered. <laughs> and what were some of the challenges that people had that led them to support the union? Like, what were difficulties of working at Bayblind? Or led people to quit? <coughs> Excuse me. Dramatic pause. Um, so a lot of the issues at Babeland were essentially like, this is a lot of emotional labor that we are not getting paid for. And a lot of it was, we're getting physically and mentally ill, and like there's not enough accommodation for that. Um, people were being asked to, when they were calling out sick, to find their own coverage, which is illegal in New York. Um, people were being pressured not to call in sick. People were, like, getting looked over for, like, promotions for very strange reasons. People were getting fired for no reason. Management was playing favorites. Um, <clears throat> people weren't getting the recognition that they deserved. Uh, the job felt really unsafe. Like, we weren't given proper safety training or de-escalation training when we were, like, dealing with people who are in a highly charged situation. People are very, very, very uncomfortable around their sexuality. Very, very, very uncomfortable around their sexuality. And sometimes that comes out as anger. Um, and sometimes it comes out as anger at the staff. Sometimes we get spit on. Sometimes our asses get grabbed. Twice in one day by separate people. Um, and we were like not given enough tools to work with those situations. So it was like a lot of that. It was more really social issues than economic issues. There were a lot of economic issues. A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Like first of all, Babeland essentially does not have full-time workers. Like as sex educators, sales associates, they still don't. They have like one or two, maybe three maximum now. And I really think it's only two. Or one, even. Um, so almost none of us have health care. 
Uh, back then, none of us had healthcare. Um, we th there was like three all store meetings that happened in the span of like a month that we kept bringing the same issues to them. And this is while the unionization efforts were like just getting started. So like people were being approached, but management didn't know what was happening. And we had three store all store meetings and we would be like, hi, these are our issues. Please listen to us. And their solution was to get an HR person that no one used. And then the second meeting, we were like, we still have these issues. We don't want this HR person. We want you to listen to us. Because the, the owners were coming to New York. To, one of them already lives in New York. To listen to us with the, like, COO and, like, CEO. And, like, it was all, like, a very direct line of, like, please run your company this way. Um, all of us are agreeing on this. We're communally coming to you. And they didn't listen to us at so all. So would they, that be, like, a petition or everybody no, every, we were standing like, together? We were, like... What? Just kind of like all like snapping, like an agreement. It was like very much like, oh, the staff like is in agreement here. Mm -hmm. Um, like no one was like upset that we had like brought issues to like the owners or anything like that. Um, and the owners refused to listen to us essentially, or they like played lip service though. They're like, oh, we'll listen eventually, or oh, we don't have the money, or oh, we don't have this, or oh, we can't do that, or oh, I think we're doing this already. Um, and eventually everyone just got sick of, like, them not listening to us. And then we're like, okay, we're a union. We have the law on our side. So fuck them. So uh, you, uh, about eight months there or so of sort of card signing, it managed to get up to 70%. How, and the employer, Babeland, found out about it at some point. How did they respond to you all? So they found out about it because we petitioned them to form a union. Oh, so they didn't find out about it until their cards yeah. were presented. They didn't find it until the cards were presented. Oh, that's we were like, hi, we have 70% of the staff who wants a union. Please give us a union. Mm -hmm. um, that same day, we also file, filed for an election to occur, uh, a, a like, vote to occur to form a union. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> With, through the NLRB? Yes. Yeah. It was like the same day because we knew they wouldn't accept it because they're bosses and they never accept it. Mm -hmm. um, even if they're like feminist. Um, which I really doubt feminist values if they're not pro-worker, but. Um, and the union RWDSU? Um, Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, yes. Can you tell us anything about RWDSU broadly? RWDSU I would describe as like more of a bottom-up union. Mm -hmm. um, so like they have open bargainings, they um, petition their worker, the, the workers of like, the shops that they're like are in charge of um uh i i would say it's one of the i, I would say it's definitely 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 definitely, definitely, definitely one of the better unions mm -hmm. out there um they helped spearhead fight for 15 they were like heavily they like have retail action project under them which is like a really great organization like a direct action oriented retail organization um they're responsible for the Macy's Union here in New York City and Zara and yeah. So they're like semi-large, well-established, bottom-up union. Mm -hmm. And when um, you were approaching people or other folks were approaching people to have conversations, what were kind of co your co-workers' associations with unions or experiences with unions? So most people were like, oh, yeah, union's cool. 
Like, Babeland had an ability to hire mostly left-oriented people. Had they ever been a part of a union, or was it their political Almost no values one. brought them? Almost no one. Oh. Uh, their political values, like, were what made them pro-union. Yeah. Um, all of them were, like, left-of-center people. Um, it's hard to be a conservative at Babeland. <laughs> I don't know if we have any. <laughs> um, we definitely have a lot of centrists, but it's hard to be a conservative. I think some people were, like, very, like, apprehensive. Eventually, I think most of the people who were apprehensive just thought they were too good for the job um, and therefore too good for union forming at the job. One, one, of, the, one of the people who were originally, like, who were originally anti-union were part of a union, but it was like the Actors Guild, which is like famously kind of messy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think anyone really had experience at a union, with a union, for a union, etc., and then most people's work experience been in retail. You mentioned you had worked in American Apparel and Hollister. And yeah, almost all my jobs have been in retail. Um, sometimes we hire people with no retail experience. Um, sometimes... I, I would say the more marginalized a person, the more retail experience they have. <laughs> um, so, like... You can be hired without no retail, without any retail or sex education experience, but you have to be a specific kind of person. Generally, a cis white woman. And do you know how the union first got in touch with staff at Babeland? Sort of who reached out to who? Yeah, so Lena was informed that the RWDC was a pretty good union mm-hmm. um, from a friend who was trying to get a unionization effort going at their place. Um, they were like, hey, you know, RWCSU is pretty keen. At another retail business. Yes, 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 yes. Well, kind of a weird business, really, but what could best be organized under the RWDSU? Mm-hmm. Um, which is not just retail, but also, like, this was the Tenements Museum, which, like, has walking tours, but they also have, like, a um, like a gift shop. There was a big unionizing campaign through the UAW at the Tenement Museum. That was the RWDSU. Oh, um, I, I'm mistaken. I'm pretty sure. Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, point is, like, through the Tenement Museum and, unfortunately, their future failure, um, Lena got in touch with the RWDSU um, and then got us in touch with, we got RWDSU in touch with the workers. Yeah. So, uh, presenting the cards, that's when the employer found out. Uh, what was the... Uh, re- spirit or solidarity between employees like at that point? Were folks really strong? Was there was Spirits it were mixed? really high. Yeah. Spirits were really, 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 really high when we presented the cards. Yeah. Almost everyone had been to inoculation meetings mm-hmm. where we were like, this is what they'll show you. Mm-hmm. They will tell you unions are bad and they will tell you all these lies and they are lies and here are the truths. Here are the printed out facts. Mm-hmm. Um, these are facts. Um, so spirits were high. When they didn't accept the union, that was just, like, more evidence they didn't want to listen to us. Um, and then when they started union busting, that was really good evidence that they didn't want to listen to us. What was the, what sort of union busting strategies did they use? So essentially what happened is we sent in the cards, and then the very next day, or maybe the day after, uh, the owner who's on the West Coast and the COO or something came to New York uh, to start talking to us about unions and how unions aren't right for us. Unions are great. My mother was in a union. 
this is not the place for a union. Which is like such a standard line. Um, and it's always bullshit. Um, a lot of union busting was actually incredibly emotionally manipulative. There was a, like, all-staff meeting. Then there was individual store... Actually, I think there were just individual store meetings where, like, the owners came to the Ribbenton location, talked to all the Ribbenton staff, and you had to be there. Mandatory meeting. Um, and then they went to the Mercer and the Brooklyn and, like, all these places, and they were like, mandatory meeting, no, 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 Rivington was always the most, well, like, the closest organized out of any of them. Um, because we were all, like, we were femme palace, and we had femme solidarity already. Um, and then they would have these one-on-one meetings where they, where they would cry because they were so sad. They felt, they felt like they had failed and that they didn't listen to us and they were going to do so much better. And it's like such a shame that we want a union, but we're going to, they're going to do so, so much better. And they're going to listen to us so much more. And they're going to give us all the things we want. We just don't need the union. Unions are great, just not for here. Uh, they had, And they were crying really, really hard. At every single meeting. It was all spontaneous, though. Do you think they got help in planning that? And how to respond? Yes, but not good help. Mm-hmm. They... I don't think they really realized how serious the issue was until we, like, until they were seeing that their union busting didn't work and we won 21 to 4, vote-wise. <laughs> and then they got a new lawyer, <laughs> a better lawyer. The 21 to 4, that's the vote? For, that was the vote. For representation? Yeah. When, how long between the cards being presented? One month. And the fact, oh, one month. Yeah. Which uh, is generally what happens, because it's yeah. like, we filed both to show cards and also go to election. Yeah. And did the their union busting did that have an? It sounds like it galvanized people more. Or yeah, because like no one wants to be cried at over and like lied to. Because we all knew they were lying. There was like two people who didn't go to like uh, the inoculation meetings, and it worked on them. But like one of the people actually after we got a union quit because they were like, I don't want this. Um, but like fuck them. Um. It was, it was really funny because we all knew better and we would all text each other like I just had my one-on-one and they cried. Oh, they cried at mine too. Oh, they used this line. Oh, they used that line at mine too. And you mentioned a really strong level of solidarity at the Rivington location between femmes. Yeah. Um, uh, tell me about some of how gender played out in the campaign. So a lot of the one-on-one meetings were like, you know, we're women. We're a small company. We're women feminist owned. Unions aren't feminist. Unions don't prioritize women. Unions don't prioritize women of color. Women don't play into any of these sort of identity politics that we're utilizing to keep you oppressed. <laughs> um, um, it, was, it was, like, funny because they were going to try and posit, like, unions don't know about trans women, but I think they knew that they didn't know about trans women either because I had said they didn't know about trans women. I described their store to their faces one time at an all-store meeting as the trans mask store. <laughs> which was my nicer version of the hot turf store. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, which is what it's been described as in the trans feminine community. The trans femmes call it either the hot turf store, if, or if they don't call it that, then they call like it the hot trans guy store, or like the nothing there for us store. <laughs> which changed eventually. Now we have gender affirming items for trans feminine people, but like, you know. 
Um, they, I, I think they gave up talking to me, really. Uh, I didn't get the one-on-one experience that a lot of people got. Um, I tried to act dumb. I was like, oh, you know, I was writing a, I was writing a, I was writing this like, dissertation in college where I was talking about unions in a historical sense, but I don't know about unions now. I already had my fucking Anson tattoo or Ancom tattoo. So like, they just were like, we don't know if this will work on you, but we're going to try just for the show of it. And I tried really, really hard to play dumb. I tried really hard. And I, I, if, if they hadn't spoken to me before I was playing it cool, before there was a union, like, I think it, they would have not known, but they knew who I was. They knew what my politics were. Are there other ways that gender played out in the campaign? You know, they went mostly only, like, kind of... Not really. I, I mean, they just tried to weaponize our womanhood against us. They tried to say, we as women need to stick together. These women who had the ability to fire the other woman tried to say that. These women who had the ability to get us better pay, get us health care. Like, um, it didn't work, really. Um... And what do you think helped keep the solidarity strong between people? We were just funnier and more charming than the owners. <laughs> we like were able to talk to each other like the owners couldn't, and we like we were able to like see past bullshit that the owners were trying to use. They got better at it, but they still weren't ever good enough. Um, we. So there were four trans women working at Babeland when the vote happened. Uh, two of the trans women were only around to stay for the vote because myself and uh, one of my coworkers had approached them and been like, hey, you should really like stick around, like if not for yourself, then for like your sisters of the future. Granted, there have, no been, there have been no sisters of the future yet, but um, so the workers were able to like actually unite on the kind of like Using similar styles that, like, the bosses were trying to use against us. We were coming to each other with, like, ideas of solidarity. Um, and, like, these ideas of, like, collective power and, like, what um, women, femmes, non-binary people, trans people, people, like, people of color, like, what we can all do together um, when you, we are united. Uh, which we used a union as an example of being united while they use the union example of being divided, which just is completely nonsensical. So uh, the vote happened a month after you're uh, presenting the cards, and what, what, and what was the response on both sides? Well, so the vote happened, we got 21 to 4. It, we, we, we thought it would be 23 to 2, but it was 21 to 4. Um, it turns out one of their union busting methods was having uh, someone smoke weed with the coworker, like a manager smoke weed with the coworkers, like <laughs> to like form solidarity with them, and apparently that worked for at least one person. <laughs> um, grossly inappropriate, if you ask me, allegedly. But um, this is just what I've been told. It is rumors. I have no fact about it, um, and I don't know if I believe it, but maybe I do. Um, 
we were a little surprised, but we won, so we didn't care. Um, and some of it came to like, okay, let's get those four people to be pro-union by like being like, hi, we're still cool. We get you don't want a union, but like we're cool. Um, eventually, one of those people who didn't who voted against it are now very pro-union. Great. I think the other two, one of the one of the uh, one of those people got fired. One of those people quit, and the other one is still around. But it's like like sticking out like a sore thumb. And were you um, politically active or politically connected outside of work very yes. much at this yes, point? Yes, yes, yes. What, what um, sorts of stuff were you doing? So at this point, I was mostly doing not very front-facing work, um, which I don't think I want to comment on. Okay. Um. I think during the union vote, I was mostly doing yeah, yes, I was active. no, I cannot comment on how no problem <laughs> so tell me about the process of forming a bargaining committee so after we got the vote, we celebrated we all went out for karaoke um, it was really fun uh. Or we all went out for drinks. Karaoke was a different occasion. So we all went out for drinks and like we networked and communicated and we were like stood solidarity. I'm telling you, solidarity happens most over a glass of beer <laughs> or wine or a bowl. Um, point is, substances help. <laughs> and for the sober people, we'll stand in solidarity being sober. <laughs> Eat mac and cheese or something, unless they're vegan. Vegan mac and cheese. Um, <laughs> but... We had like some time off, and then eventually there was like a call for like, "Hey, this is an open bargaining session. There's no committee. Just show up." Oh. So like, which I think is like one of the most excellent ways to do it. So no, what? So uh, we we had open bargaining here at NYU, but we elected a committee to sort of coordinate those sessions. We're two, we're two small had, staff. Oh, interesting. We're a staff of like. So who was the lead negotiator? We had, we had a lawyer that, okay. like, so what would happen is we would go into the room. Uh, so there was, like, three rooms, essentially. There was the room where all management was, the conference room, and the room where we all were. Yeah. Um, we would be in our room talking about what we need. We'd prioritize what we need. We'd, like, send out surveys asking, like, people to rate on a scale of, like, 1 to 20, 1 being the most important, 20 being the least important, and you can't have, like, two 20s or two 1s, like, the needs. And we mapped out what people wanted the most and what people wanted the least. Um, and we fought hottest on the things people wanted the most. And we didn't fight at all on the shit. Like, we did fight, like, because we fought on everything. Everything had to seem equally important. Um, but, like, we definitely pushed really, really motherfucking hard on, like, the really, really important shit. Um, and that was done by the workers coming to these, like, uh, open bargaining sessions. And we were like, we need to prioritize this. We want this. Like, I've talked to people. They want that. Like, da-da-da, this, that, the other. With two union reps and a... Uh, lawyer who was like the boss of the union reps kind of but also their friends so you know you know hierarchies and nonprofits can work sometimes bullshit um and what would happen is like we would say all these things and they'd be like okay you can't be like an official voice in there because we can't be sued um but we're only going to push what you want we're only going to renegle on what you want and we're going to like call caucuses and like take time apart like whenever we're not sure on something and stuff like that and we, we, they always waited for our stamp of approval before they, like, agreed on anything. 
That's great. Yeah, no, it's really great. Do you remember any particular bargaining sessions that had a big impact on you? Um. <laughs> so they started to really dislike me at bargaining sessions. Uh, the management did. Uh, because I was showing up to literally every single one of them. Um, there was only one bargaining session I missed, ever. Um, so I would constantly sit across with them. And, like, our role as the workers was to be angry, as angry as possible. Like, just, like, the union has to be, like, holding us back from nearly, like, foaming at the mouth and jumping at them from across the table, which was mostly an act for some people. But for me, it was literal. I, there would be, like, times where I would stand up and slam my hand and be like, this is totally unacceptable. And I was like, how dare you? And I'd be like, you call yourself a feminist? This is not feminism. Um, I'm on the <laughs> I'm on the labor board <laughs> right now, which means I get to meet people every three months and yell at them because um, I was very good at it. Um, What's the labor board? Um, I forget what the technical term is, but there's like a shop steward, and then we have like this board that comes together every three months to discuss like ongoing issues and try to resolve them. And I'm on that board. There's three workers and three management that show up. Mm -hmm. um, but a bargaining session that really stood out to me was. We, so there was a dress code that was made because of me, like literally because of me. I would show up in booty shorts that showed my ass cheeks off all the time because being trans is like sight of hand and you have to bring attention to body parts you like and draw attention away from body parts you don't, um, which is like really real for everyone, but especially trans people. So my body part that I'm really proud of is my ass. I have an amazing fucking ass. Like you could eat dinner off it while I'm standing up. Um, it's like just perfect. <laughs> Um, and I would show it off. I'd wear booty shorts and like, it wasn't to get attention. It was to draw attention away from other things. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, I didn't like when I got attention. It was just like, it was like a thing that it was like people I knew would probably pay attention to, but it's socially unacceptable to pay attention to it. So like, I would be able to have human interactions with people pretty easily because they all of a sudden like shut down and they're like, I can't notice anything about this person. <laughs> um, it's all very smart, <laughs> but Management did not like that I had my ass out. Well, they liked it, but then they hired a new manager who I think took issue with it and was like, we need a dress code. Um, and there's this thing called status quo, which means once you vote, once you like petition to have a union and you're like waiting to vote and until you have a contract, they can't make new rules up. And they can't suddenly start enforcing rules that they weren't before. And since Babeland didn't have really a dress code before, um, they couldn't enforce one, except they had to bargain one into the contract. But they tried to enforce it on me only. Because I wasn't the only person wearing booty shorts, but I was the only person approached about it. And I wasn't the only person wearing chiffon tops, but I was, or like mesh tops, but I was the only person approached for it. Things that like my coercively signed female at birth trans coworkers and my like cis male coworkers were wearing that were like totally socially acceptable were like suddenly like provocative or like unacceptable on me. So they made a dress code just for me. Which was you cannot have your booty out. They were like most adamant on the buttocks not showing. Um and one day I was called in and I got a talking to, called into an office and I got a talking to from my boss who was like, you can't dress like this. And I was, and I, and I look at her and I go, well, luckily we're in what is called status quo, which means you cannot create these rules and you cannot unfairly, uh, 
like have these rules apply to only me and since you have no way to officially discipline me and you have no I have no re- legal recourse I will continue to wear what I want to wear so I kept showing up in booty shorts and then I wore even smaller ones at bargaining sessions excellent and one time and and those bargaining session after I got that write up I showed up in the smallest booty shorts I had which also had no sides um, it was essentially ass flaps <laughs> and like a, it was a denim thong if I had to be honest and I sat next to, I sat next to Claire, who is one of the co-owners. And she like, she's like a very lovely person. Like, she's like sweet. She's kind of like a lesbian mom. Um, cause she is a lesbian mom. Um, and she wants to be on, she wants to be on friendly terms with her staff. I mean, like this is a company that used to go to Metro together and snort croak together in the bathroom. This is a company that used to have magic wand races behind the register. This is a company that would like... Allegedly, this is all alleged. I would never say this is actually fact, but this is all alleged. Um, this is like the rumors that go around that, like maybe sometimes on occasion, a fame a, fa- a person who eventually got pay- famous would for twenty bucks show you where your G spot was in the bathroom because you never knew the G spot was a thing before and you don't know where it is. Um, these are all rumors and like the kind of stories that get passed around. Um, and I think she wanted like to be friends, but like didn't know how as also a boss because she can't. Um, so I turned to Claire in my booty shorts, as this, it's a bargaining session after I look at my manager and go, you have no legal ability to do this to me. And I turn to Claire and I go, are you ready? Because someone had brought up, so the, the lawyer was like, and now I think we have to talk about this dress code. And Claire's face like just kind of drops a little bit. And everyone just looks like really tense except me, who was like really excited and leaning over the table. And I turn to Claire and I go, are you ready? And she goes, no. And I go, are you excited? She goes, no. I was like, do you like my shorts? She goes, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is unacceptable. This is like not body positivity. This is unevenly applied. And like, I'm going really, really buck wild after someone had been like very reasonable before. And like, you know, we dress in this manner and we feel like we aren't talking to you about it, but Octavia is. Like very like, we're all like very calm and like we're here as humans. And I'm like, this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> and then we got a very liberal dress code in the contract as a result. Mm-hmm. And um, did you guys get outside support or solidarity from, like, other unions or other political groups or employee groups or, like, what, what, yeah. So we did get a lot of outside support. Um, We contacted two city council members, three, three city council members, Um, one of them has, like, purview over the Lower East Side and the Soho location. Like it is, I forget their names, I'm so bad. Um, another is the person who has purview over the uh, one by the Barclays Center. And the third one is like the head of the LGBT caucus of New York City, who was really fabulous. <laughs> um, really, really got along with him. And I was at the meetings with all three of them. And we were able to get them to like sign a letter saying like, we want you to like accept these people's unions, this, that, the other. Um, so that was like the biggest wigs we got. Um, we also had several community members like email them in solidarity with us. Like, Hey, we want, we want you to know that we want this contract to be signed. Um, and they responded really, 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 really like intensely to that. Like as soon as they heard, like I was like at the bargaining session, like after we got community members to like reach out to them about something, they were like, 
you can't do this. You can't be going to the community. We have like we are a feminist. Blah, 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 blah. Like really, really nervous. Like they did not want their image to be hurt. Um, and like they, we, it wasn't even bad emails. It was just like, hey, you know, we we're, we're glad that you like have this union now. We're hoping that like you're going to be like, like very mild mannered, fucking messages. And they bugged out at any of that. But we had like a lot of community solidarity. We had like a list of community allies that were willing to reach out to them whenever we needed them to. And we only really had to use like three of them because every time we did, they like freaked out and gave us what we wanted sometimes, which is good because we had a long fucking list and we could have gotten like a lot of boycotts going on. Like lesbian sex mafia would have sworn to never buy from them again. Um, like all these places would have been like, we're never doing, we're never dealing with you people again if you don't do this. But like very mild things got us what we wanted. There was one point where we were leafleting um, outside the Lower East Side location and the Brooklyn location and I think the Soho location because one of our coworkers was fired unjustly. Really fucked up situation. Um, and a lot of people were actually very, very receptive. They were like, oh, thank you, let's get in touch, this, that, the other. We were able to get in touch with like a lot of community members and also like weirdly because it was Lower East Side and everyone lives there who works for tech companies or bullshit had like two reporters be like oh this is very interesting let me take down this information um so yeah a lot of lot a lot a lot of community support because people in theory love unions um people especially in theory love unions just not for themselves and you mentioned the lesbian sex mafia um have, what were some of the responses from broader queer sex and trans communities loved it city. loved yeah. it we, they loved we had a union they were like oh good loved we had a union um didn't love that we weren't getting the union the the contract as fast as we were why do you think that was why do you think there was broad union support because i mean like the history of unions is like the history of like like the first unions were founded by women like in the united states like this is, like, something that is in our cultural consciousness because God knows, like, the only way women are going to get, like, equal pay and, like, favoritism will be stopped being shown to men and stuff like, is, like, if we bargain it in because the bosses aren't going to listen to us, but the bosses will listen to us if we're all together in a goddamn union. People are very, like, invested in our community becoming more organized. Uh, and for your own politics, were besides wanting to have a better job and wanting to not be mistreated and, you know, your own personal benefit. Did you have an analysis about how this campaign might fit into a broader yes. struggle? Yes, 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 yes. Tell me about that. So luckily, so Babeline is the first multi-store sex toy shop in America to be unionized. We also were able to get into our contract. A, we have the most impressive first contract the RWDSU has ever had. We have so many social, like, uh, things set up that we are supported socially. We have better defense training. Um, we have Mayday off. We have, like, we have, um, uh, ah, shit, what is it called? When you're, like, given, like, when if two people have the, like, same resume, the person more marginalized is given preference. Um, we have that in the contract. Uh, affirmative action. We have affirmative action in the contract. Um, not that it's helped any trans women so far, but we have it in the contract. It'd be nice if it helped trans women, but we don't have it yet. Um, like, we have a very, very, very robust first contract. 
something that can be pointed to and be like, listen, they got this because they did this. Because they threatened to strike, they have this. Mm-hmm. Striking really works. You threaten a motherfucker's bottom dollar, <sighs> they lose a day of business, they shit their pants. They lose a weekend before their busiest they like they use they lose their busiest weekend, they will cave. So you guys had a strike vote and a strike plan. Yep. Before. We had a strike vote, we had a yeah. strike plan, and this contract which has been dragged out forever, this price, which like they, they like put forward like this is as much as we can go, we can't budge. And I like budged just the smallest percentage. Like every time we met, they budget slightly, 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 slightly higher. They'd wring their hands and be like, we can't afford this, we can't do it. We voted to strike. We presented our vote to strike. They already knew, because snitches. Um, But they weren't able to mobilize against it fast enough or like robustly enough because we had over 80% of the workforce voted to strike. Yeah. Um... And the next bargaining session we met up, they had almost triple their budget planned out to give us. And then we got slightly more than that. Um, because we were like, listen, we're going to strike on Valentine's Day weekend, which means you're going to lose the busiest weekend of your fucking job. That's huge. Yeah. How long was bargaining? Bargaining took somewhere around a year, which for, like, maybe... Somewhere around a year, which for like a company of like forty-ish people is like obscenely long. That is like re- like ludicrously long mm-hmm. for like and like Bayland did not have their shit together in like busting the union or like any of that. Like it was all like kind of pathetic. It was all really really sad and pathetic. Um, and they kept doing things that like they would shoot themselves in the foot by like trying to be anti-union, but then they would do things that would just like mobilize the workforce even more against them. Um, <laughs> it was all really, really silly. So you all won a contract this February? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so last month, a month ago or so? A little bit more than a month ago yeah. now, yeah. Because it was like, I think like maybe the first week of February-ish, mm-hmm. um, somewhere around that time. Uh, we got a contract, the most robust first contract in our BSU history. And it was a contract for queers, people of color, and like trans people um and like above we we were able to get it above minimum wage that it'll be in a few years so like we'll still be like able to like stay in the game and relevant that's great and uh what has happened since the contract um So, they've decided to test the limit of the contracts out. A lot of times on me. I have been given so far three write-ups. Since then. Sometimes, like, write-ups that, like, literally just cannot be allowed to happen under the contract. Um... So how are you, how are you all responding to that? We are going to arbitration. Mm-hmm. So here's what happens, though. Here's here's something funny that happened. There was a Yelp review written about me in December. They called me a man and said that I was dressed completely inappropriately. Um, they were like, "It's winter, sweetie." 
um, and just like in general, like completely like was a most incredibly biased review. They called me racist because I'm Jewish, and I said Mazel Tov to them when they were like, and they were like, they must have been racist thinking I was Jewish, and I was just like, or I'm Jewish. <laughs> I didn't say that because they said that I was racist against Jews and that I was a man and I was like all these things in this Yelp review to, about a Jewish trans woman. Um, and Babylon decided to write me up for that review. So I have a disciplinary action against me due to a Yelp review that calls me a man. Um, and it was because I didn't want to hear this person talk about how they abuse their partner um, in front of me. And I was just like, I was like, I was like, is there anything else we can help you with? All right, great. If there's nothing else we can help you with, have a beautiful evening. Like, very, like, you know, I'm being very nice to you because I'm getting paid to do this, but I don't want to interact with you kind of situation. Um, I was very polite. I was was exceedingly polite. Exceedingly polite. Um, But Babylon wrote me up because of Yelp review that called me a man. And all these other things. And the union has my back and they say this is absolutely completely unacceptable like this is obviously a biased review we are not even considering this as like in the purview of existing um, so this feminist transpositive body positive sex positive company has decided to align themselves with homophobic transphobic anti-semites over their own worker, because their own worker is very pro-union. And how has the campaign shaped your politics and shaped, affected you, or transformed you in the process? I think the most revealing thing was uh, learning that people were against unions. Because, like, I come from, like, a family, like, that is, like, I don't know, like, this working-class family, my father's a schlub, like, like, everyone was, like, unions are great, like, if it wasn't for a union, we'd be, like, wouldn't be around, or, like, if it wasn't for, like, like, they're all Republicans now, but they were Democrats back then, (laughs) um, that kind of family, um, and I, like, learned that, like, people, like, were against unions, even though, like, it just, like, it just, like, didn't occur to people that unions were a thing that they should be for, um, so, like, the unionization process hasn't taught me really anything or, like, ra- radicalized me or in any sort of way. Um, if anything, it strengthened my support of unions, but only, like, bottom-up unions. Top-down unions can go fuck themselves. Um, but unions, with, which keeps anarchist principles in mind, those are, like, really important, non-hierarchical, etc. Um, but, like, it's, it's kind of terrifying that people can only align with unions not because of any sort of, like, political leanings or, like moral or ethical leanings, but because, like, their friends do. And it, it, like... It's terrifying to think that it works the other way, too. Um, And it's really, really, really eye-opening that, like, the... Like, I knew this happened, but, like, to be so directly confronted by people who describe themselves as feminist and as radical and, like, can have tattoos from fingertips to neckline and like describe themselves as queer and radical and left and in some cases like anarchists and like then be anti-union is really really frightening 
Um, and to rely on, like, bougie fucking, like, identity politics bullshit is really frightening. And to see how it works is really terrifying. Um, but to see how it doesn't work is also really great. So it's mostly... Galvanizing! That's the word I'm looking for. It's mostly galvanizing. And uh, do you think the staff at Bayblend will engage in other kinds of political action together in any way coming out of this? Several co-workers came to the women's strike that I spoke at. I spoke about Babeland there. I called Babeland's feminism boss feminism. I said Babeland's feminism was uh, based on divisiveness and deception and uh, was feminism used as a tool of the ruling class. And several coworkers came out to that thing. Uh, and I know at least two of them would not have gone if I was not speaking. And I know like people wouldn't have been interested if it wasn't for the union. And so yeah, I, I see babes, which was what we refer to each other in like what management friends like babe babes work at Babeland. Babes at Babeland. Uh, babes um are becoming more and will continue to be politically robust in really interesting direct action oriented ways. What's the women's strike? <clears throat> the women's strike was March 8th, 20... Like, the this really big one that just happened was March 8th. Uh, and it was a call for women to, like, strike from their workplace. Um, or if they can't strike, then, like, ask other people to strike. And, like, Babeland couldn't strike because we just signed a contract, which was, like, no strike, no walkout, which is, like, absolutely... Like, it's the most ridiculous clause I've, I've heard of in my life. It's in literally every contract, which is terrifying and should not be around, and we should just constantly be striking. Um, and that's a criticism of unions right there that I will stand by forever. Um, but I will say it was a working day, and I may have seen some people who worked at the union there too, and I don't think any of them were upset that they saw babes there, which is, I think, really nice. But the woman strike was this call to action to strike from your work, both like emotional labor, uh, physical labor, paid labor, unpaid labor, everything. Like women should not participate in the workforce this way. Like we need to participate in the workforce by striking it and like coming out in force. And I, I would say at maximum 8,000 people showed up in Washington Square Park, um, somewhere around 7,000 Um. It was really inspiring and really beautiful. Um, I you spoke there. Yeah, I spoke there. I was invited to speak there. Um, they gave me a five-minute block, but I told them to give a minute to Red Umbrella Project, who was following after me, because I was like, listen, anything I can say, like, they can say too, but, like, different. Like, I'm just going to talk about unions. They're going to talk about other shit. Give them the extra minute. <laughs> um, and I got up on stage, and I said, I, I, I was introduced as a biological trans one, which is the greatest introduction I've ever asked for in my life. I asked for it. I get, I get introduced everywhere that I speak or, like, read at as a biological trans woman. I think it's hilarious. Um, and I think cis people should call trans women biological trans women. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I got up, and the first words out of my mouth were, Hi, my name is Octavia Luna Conner, and I am a strike success story. And I spoke about how we got nearly triple the budget because we threatened a strike. Uh, and what if, what are your relationships with trans communities like in New York these days? Very positive. Very, very, very positive. 
Very, 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 very positive. It's hard. You're you're hard pressed generally to find like a trans woman who would say they dislike me as a. They they would say they find me annoying. Lord knows there's a lot of trans women in this city who find me annoying. But like, I have such a deep love for my sisters, and I always want like them to know like, no matter what we disagree on, unless you're a fascist, I like I, you're still a sister. And the same way things with family can be strained, like, no matter what, sisters, like, I would literally put on my, my life on the line for a sister, even if I didn't agree with her politically, because no one else is going to do that. And I have more love in my body for trans women than I could ever have animosity. And I think, like, a lot of sisters, like, a lot of my sisters see that, and it's really nice. Um, I threw a birthday party instead of killing myself, and 45 to 50 trans women showed up to it, and I was like, I didn't even know I knew so many of you. <laughs> Actually, trans women I didn't know showed up. <laughs> um, and it was really nice. And I would say, like, except for some extreme examples, um two people I could think of ever. Um, I have a very, very, very positive, strong relationship with the trans women in the city. And I love them all really, really, like, I... I could never find myself hating a trans woman. I could find myself not wanting to be around a particular trans girl. But I would really only ever wish her to be alive at the very least and to be happy. Like, I just, I just don't want to see any, I don't want to go to any more funerals. 25, I've been to enough funerals already. I don't need to do any more. And I just want people to be nice to each other. Anything else you would like to share? Um, I guess the only thing I'd like to share is <laughs> I really hope I really, really hope that uh, everyone can look out for each other. I do think like unions, unions, bottom-up unions are really helpful with that, and I think yeah, I think I think if you're trans, I think can I speak to the microphone? I think if you're a trans woman listening right now, I can very safely say I love you. Um, yeah. Thank you.